from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on a and Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. On this episode of Newt's World, politically correct radicals have left us speechless. The left's assault on liberty, virtue, decency the Republic of the Founders and Western Civilization, has succeeded. You can no longer keep your social media account or your job and acknowledge truths such as Washington, Jefferson, and Columbus were great men. How do we get to this point? In Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds, national best-selling author and political commentator, Michael Knowles of The Daily Wire, reveals how political correctness is part of a large political agenda to stifle free thought through strategic control of language. He exposes and diagnoses the long strategy conservatives have fallen for and shows how they can change course and start winning. Here to discuss his new best-selling book, I'm very pleased to welcome my guest, Michael Knowles. Michael, what's the response been so far? Well, thank you so much for having me, Speaker Gingrich. The response has really exceeded my expectations. I was going into this as a already technically a best-selling author, but I had never written a book. So my previous magnum opus was an entirely blank book called Reasons to Vote for Democrats. And so I thought it'd be very fitting to write my second book about the subject of language itself and words. And I do think that 
The timing has been serendipitous for book sales, but it's really pretty bad for our country that right now free speech is so under attack, both through the explicit censorship of, for instance, big tech, but also the subtler pre-censorship of the politically correct wordsmiths. And actually, I suppose the New York Times has proven me right because they've redefined the term bestseller not to include the books that are selling better than the other books. I'm really pleased with the response, and I hope that it can start to shift the course on, on how we think about free speech. I want to validate what you just said. Our mutual friend, Margie Ross, who for many, many years guided Regnery to amazing success as a conservative book publisher, just did a column and pointed out that you actually sold 4,000 more books in one week than the book that was picked by the New York Times to be number one. And it was just typical of the kind of uphill that strong conservatives face when dealing with the elite media. I will confess I had not realized that you'd begun to be a bestseller with a book that had nothing in it. As a guy who's worked very hard over the years, it never occurred to me to have the chutzpah to do that. And it's an interesting idea, but you already did it. So I'm curious, you jump from literally wordless to speechless. <laughs> I did. There's actually a bit of a history here, too, because I did not write the first blank book in American history. There have been others, Everything Men Know About Women. The Wit and Wisdom of Spiro T. Agnew was one of them. And it actually goes back to the 1880 presidential race when James Garfield and Chester Arthur were running on a ticket, and they published the political achievements and statesmanship of General Hancock, Democratic nominee for president. So I think Republicans making fun of Democrats with blank books, it's a long and storied tradition in American history. You obviously are fascinated with the power of words, and I know that you do that on the Michael Knowles show at the Daily Wire. But I'm curious as a person, what got you into thinking about the power of language? Well, I was considering all the various political issues that were told as the most important issue of the day, immigration, say, or foreign wars, or trade, or tax policy, or occupational licensing reform, and everything in between. And I thought none of those issues are really at the heart of our cultural and political struggle right now. I think what is at the heart is language. I think the manipulation of language is the most effective tool that the left has had for attaining power and wielding power. It occurred to me that there had not been a popular history written of what political correctness is. And so I set out to do that, and I trace it back about 100 years. Most people trace it to the 80s or 90s, but I trace it back to about the 1920s. And I chronicle how it has transformed over time. And more importantly, I think, I try to take seriously the leftist thinkers who developed political correctness, going back to Antonio Gramsci, Herbert Marcuse, the critical theorists, the second wave feminists, up through the present. Because I think that contrary to conservative self-flattery, I actually think the left understands free speech and censorship better than we do. And I noticed that political correctness no matter how hard we fight against it, we always seem to lose ground. And I think it's because it lays a trap for conservatives, whereby either way we react to it, we end up actually advancing political correctness. And what I mean by that is PC sets out, in my estimation, to destroy society's traditional standards. And so you have the squishes on the one hand, when they go along with the new standards, obviously that's going to advance PC. But then even the more stalwart conservatives, the ones who say, I'm not going to go along with the new standard, maybe they call themselves free speech absolutists or something like that. 
What they end up doing is grounding their arguments in abandoning standards entirely. And the trick here is that either way, the traditional standards are abandoned, the new woke standards take their place, and the left pushes the ball down the field even further. In that context, isn't there a zone that we'll call facts that you could repair to to make a straightforward argument that your opponent's nuts? <laughs> I think that would be a very factual argument. And while my colleague here at the Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro, is fond of saying facts don't care about your feelings, unfortunately, politics cares quite a lot about your feelings. And I also think that conservatives have failed to make many substantive arguments. You know, I notice that a lot of conservatives will defend free speech in the abstract, but all too often they have nothing to say in practice, in reality. And I'm really not just flattering you, Speaker Gingrich, but you are one of the few conservatives who has really been a serious cultural crusader, who has actually said substantive things. Very often, I'm reminded of the kind of weak types on the right who, I'm not joking, will describe drag queen story hour as one of the blessings of liberty. And uh, that sound you're hearing right now, by the way, is James Madison rolling over in his grave at the very thought. I mean, there are people on the right who believe that if we don't tell perverts at the drag queen story hour that they can't twerk for little children, why then the left will tell us that we can't go to church on Sunday? And I think, first of all, they're already telling us we can't go to church on Sunday. <laughs> they're telling us that for about a year. But even more broadly, if we really cannot discern between drag queen story hour and going to church, if we cannot discern between good and bad and right and wrong and true and false, then we have surrendered our capacity for self-government, which relies on faculties of reason, moral conscience, and the ability and the courage to articulate plain facts. One of the books that really affected me last year, I don't know if you've seen it yet, is by a guy who was born in Lebanon, survived the Lebanese Civil War, and as he put it, left Lebanon, went to Canada, and ended up for 20 years in a cultural civil war on the college campus where he teaches. And he said, frankly, the cultural civil war was worse than the civil war in Lebanon. He has an odd name. It's Sad, S-A-A-D. He's a friend of mine, and I know him quite well. He wrote a book called The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. Back to your point, there are two levels. One is all too many conservatives, or for that matter, non-radicals, don't have the nerve to simply say that's wrong. It's not complicated. That's wrong. We have descended into a sort of radical skepticism on the right, which is too bad. You know, I'm reminded of those early days of the post-war conservative movement. Men like William F. Buckley Jr., for instance, coming out and bringing together this new coalition that would result in a great many victories in the 1980s and 1990s, you know quite well. And everyone remembers the title of that first book that Bill Buckley had. It was God and Man at Yale. But very few people remember the subtitle, which was The Superstitions of Quote-Unquote Academic Freedom. What he said was that academic freedom, as we talk about it today, is a hoax. It's a farce. It's a tool by the left to try to force upon us a radical skepticism. But it's preposterous. No one believes that Yale would hire a Nazi to teach sociology 
nor should it. Obviously, the university has a mission. Some things are true and some things are false, and we need to stand up for that. And then later on in a firing line debate with Leo Churn in 1966, Leo Churn was shocked to find out that Bill Buckley did not support the totally open society. I think often our society opens its mind so much that its brain falls out. Buckley said, no, I don't want a totally open society. He used one of these silly phrases. He said, I'm an epistemological optimist, by which he meant, I think we can know things. I think certain things are settled and we can state them plainly and say, as you say, this is wrong and this is right. And I don't know where along the way we managed to flip that. I think it's because we bought the silly premises of the left and then we've found ourselves running in circles ever since. Just think about my own generation, because I'm 78 now, and so I came along in the 60s and 70s, and I think there was almost a sense of fair play and a sense of super confidence. I think it's easy to forget that the generation that came out of World War II had such triumphalism about the American way of life, about the values we fought for, about our capacity to dominate economically, that everybody got pretty sloppy. So people could come in and say, well, you know, imagine that there is no moon. And they go, well, okay, why not? It's not a big threat. And we've just gone a slippery slope. And I don't think we realized that we have active opponents. They get to replace our words with their words. So George Washington is no longer the father of our country. He is, in fact, a white racist slave owner. And if we were to describe him as the father of the country, there are schools where we would be booed. No, you're seeing the importance of symbols playing out. I mean, words obviously are symbols, and so that's the chief area of battle. And it's why the left is so focused on getting all of us to say that Bruce Jenner is she and her. I don't just mean this about Mr. Jenner, but a great many other people. If they can get us to deny a plain reality before our eyes, then they really can get quite close to redefining reality. But look at it over the great national symbols right now. There was just a host on MSNBC, not that I would ever encourage anyone to watch that channel, but there was a host on there who was very left-wing who said that the American flag is a symbol of hatred, quoting BLM, that the American flag is a symbol of hatred and our founding fathers, evil, terrible, racist slave owners. And now you're seeing a reframing of our nation's history. I mean, these were the words of Nicole Hannah-Jones in the 1619 Project. Her central thesis was a lie that the revolution was fought to defend slavery. But even beyond that, she doesn't care about the fact, she cares about the framing. And she says right out front, the purpose of this project is to reframe American history to put slavery at the center of it. You're seeing the reframing of our National Independence Day. There is a new National Independence Day that derives from a local tradition in Galveston, Texas. It's called Juneteenth. But the name of the bill was not the Juneteenth holiday. The name of the bill was the Juneteenth National Independence Day. You're now seeing a black national anthem, a separate national anthem, as though black people aren't part of America or something like that. This is all part of an attack on symbols. I think very often you'll hear conservatives say, oh, who cares? Who cares about the words? Who cares about the pronouns? Who cares about the symbols? My answer to them is, the left cares. <laughs> the left is investing a lot of time and energy and resources into transforming our symbols. And maybe they're doing it because that's quite a powerful tool. And I think manifestly it is because they've been so successful over the past several decades.
From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. this goes back to the shallowness about history. If everything is presentism, then nothing's a threat. But if you have any sense of the arc of history, you begin to realize that we're in a usually important period. And I think that's why the concept of your book, the whole notion that paying attention to the words leads ultimately to shaping the minds. And that if you can't say it, there's a pretty good chance you can't think it. Well, and this to me is the real fear. Obviously, the fact that three oligarchs in Silicon Valley, led by hipster Rasputin, Mr. Jack Dorsey, can censor the duly elected sitting president, that is a great threat to the political order. If you control speech, you control politics, as good old Uncle Aristotle would tell us. But there is that more insidious pre-censorship. I just read this phrase that has become very popular in legal and academic circles. The phrase is, justice-involved persons. 
This is the new euphemism that refers to criminals. And I thought, well, hold on a second here. You can call criminals a great many things, but the one thing you can't call them is justice involved, because by definition, they are involved in injustice. Or you think about this phrase, undocumented Americans. This is one of the newer euphemisms for an illegal alien. The phrase undocumented American suggests, it implies, that this person has a right to be in America. They just don't have certain papers, but they'll get them. Not a big deal. Illegal alien or foreign national or some other term like that implies that they don't have a right to be in America because they're citizens of another country. Whichever language you're going to use here is going to set up the debate. And in many ways, I think the left wins the debate before it even begins. They do that in part by a moral assertion. One of the things we have to reteach ourselves is that the side ultimately that defines is the side that believes enough that it can say things with confidence. My favorite example, when asked, do you agree with Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. that the content of your character is more important than the color of your skin? It is 91 to 6. Which means if we could train all of our activists that every time somebody starts down the road of race, they just cut them off and say, you know, I actually agree with Reverend King that it's the content of our character. Now, do you oppose Reverend King? Are you saying Reverend King was wrong? It's a great line. I think this is why, by the way, you're noticing the left making a big retreat on the issue of critical race theory. They, they seem to be giving different opinions out of different sides of their mouth. On the one hand, they'll double down like the, the president of the American Federation of Teachers and say, we support critical race theory. We defend critical race theory. And then on the other hand, they'll say, also, critical race theory doesn't exist. <laughs> also, nobody's teaching it. So well, which one is it? Because it reminds me of when Dr. Fauci, who's another brilliant wordsmith, Dr. Fauci came out and he said, he was arguing with Rand Paul, and he said, we are not funding gain-of-function research for Wuhan. And by the way, even if we are, it's totally fine. <laughs> and he said, wait a second, hold on, what, what is it? Are we not doing it or it's totally fine? That, by the way, raises a totally different question that I'd like to get your take on. It's not precisely about speechless, but it's about something even more fundamental. I just finished doing a draft of a book called Beyond Biden which is designed to reassure people that there is, in fact, a world beyond Biden. I'm relieved to hear it. Yeah. But while I was working on it, I found I could not write a chapter on COVID. And the reason I couldn't was the more research we did, the stranger and weirder and more dishonest it is. And it actually requires its own book. You can't do it in a chapter. I was very fortunate in that... I first ran for office in 1974 during Watergate against the dean of the Georgia delegation, and my friend said to me, you know, you can't win. And I ended up getting something like, I don't know, 48.6%, and they were right. I didn't win. So I came back two years later against the same dean of the delegation, and I was at a great campaign until April when Jimmy Carter won the Wisconsin primary, and I realized... I was going to have Jimmy Carter at the head of the Democratic ticket in Georgia. And so I had that whole cycle to live through. And that was the best campaign of my career. And it was so good that by election day, because when you're the candidate, there's sort of this inward feeling that people are nice to you and they applaud. And they come to your fundraisers. So by election day, I thought I was going to win. And I went to the Neva Lomason Library to vote. 
And I found myself standing behind four people who had come from the nursing home. And they'd come to get revenge for Sherman's march through Georgia. (laughs) And I stood there as a Republican Yankee who had been born in Pennsylvania and was an army brat. And I thought to myself, how likely is it that they're going to split their ticket? (laughs) And I knew it was going to be a long night, which it was, so I lost. I came back and won in 78. But I give you that background because Reagan was faced with this. He didn't have Rush. He didn't have Fox. You know, he didn't have all the various tools we have. But he learned that if you seized language dominance and you had just relentless repetition, that you would break the other side because people would look at the two choices and over time they'd say, that's crazy. So yesterday I was talking to a great African-American who I hope is going to run for office. And he was saying to me, this whole thing about race is crazy. He said, I have a son who's half Italian. Now, what am I supposed to say to him? You know, and he said, there were 11 of us on the football team. And I didn't say, gee, I'd like to run behind the black guy. (laughs) I said, recruit the best line you can get because I need him to run behind. And he said, this whole current thing is just nuts, which you may have seen George Foreman said last weekend that he was not going to tolerate people telling him he had to hate America because he loved America. I was so pleased to see at least one athlete left who's standing up for America happens to be George Foreman. I think actually the sports provides an interesting insight into this, which is, I think, beyond opportunists such as Colin Kaepernick or that woman who disrespected the American flag at the Olympic trials or, you know, a handful of people who get all the headlines. I strongly suspect that most professional athletes are fairly patriotic people, and yet the anti-American voices are the ones that we hear most clearly because they are amplified by all of the institutions which the left dominates because our professional sports leagues have almost entirely sold out to China. They work at the behest of Nike, and Nike is, as its CEO recently told us, a brand of China and for China. I think that's quite a shock to uh, many Americans who wear Nike sneakers, or who at least used to. And so they get this disproportionate play. And this, I think, was part of the plan from the beginning. In Speechless, I quote at length this Italian Marxist philosopher, Antonio Gramsci. He was the founder of the Italian Communist Party. Very important thinker. And just to give you a sense of how influential he has been in leftist circles here in America, a co-founder and a former president of the International Gramsci Society was a man by the name of Joseph Buttigieg. He rendered the only English translation we have of the prison notebooks. If that name sounds familiar, it's because his son uh, ran for president and his son is now the transportation secretary. And by the way, he was one of the most milquetoast people in the whole party. So you think, goodness gracious, if even the moderates have this kind of intellectual pedigree, what do the radicals have? So what Gramsci understood was that a radical revolution along Marxist lines would not take place because... No revolution can succeed if it doesn't have the common sense. You know, those poor oppressed masses were just waiting to be liberated by the radical theorists, but it turns out they didn't like all the radical theories. (laughs) They liked their traditions and their community and their countrymen. Gramsci sets out and he says, the radicals need to attain cultural hegemony, which they will do by waging not a war of maneuver, advance and retreat, but a war of position by attaining positions of influence within the established institutions. And then just like Hemingway describes going bankrupt as gradually, then suddenly, you gradually attain all this power and then you wield it. And I think probably we're in the suddenly portion today, lest anybody accuse me, by the way, of conspiracy theorizing 
I've got something like a hundred pages of notes and citations in the book. The, the thinkers who developed this refer pretty explicitly to these thinkers, and I just fear that conservatives have not taken that kind of a systematic approach. We care very much about winning the next election, we care very much about this fundraiser the next, but the left was looking at a long game that has given them such power that even if the majority of voices in this country are perfectly ordinary, patriotic, good people, they will be drowned out because we don't have the microphone. I think that's exactly right, because one of the things that's happened with me, as I went through this process of realizing that if you measure against the radical left, which in many ways includes Biden and Schumer and Pelosi and Harris, you know, one of Trump's greatest contributions may in the end have been creating a false sense of security on the left, so that when they won, they thought they could run around with really weird ideas. And the people would be for them because, after all, the alternative was Trump. So they said, you either have to be for truly insane things or you're for Trump. And gradually people are beginning to go, oh, okay, well, I guess this means I must be for Trump because you're nuts. Well, I think there's some proof of this right now, by the way, because the left, I guess the polling finally came in for them, and they realized that some of their insane plans are not playing very well in Peoria. So you have, for instance, Chris Cuomo on CNN comes out. He says, you know, no one on this program has ever defended riots or political violence. And then you cut to the clip of him last summer, and he explicitly defends BLM riots and says they don't need to be peaceful. Or you look at some people on the left, they've called for the abolition of the police. And obviously, it's not going very well, especially with crime spikes around the country. And so now you have Jen Psaki, the spokesman at the White House, saying, actually, it's the Republicans who wanted to fund the police. I don't remember that ever happening. So they're trying to gaslight very well, because I think you're absolutely right that President Trump gave them the sense of security to come out and say, this is what we're really about, tear down the statues, tear down the country. And now they've been exposed for that. And I think people far beyond Trump. And I was reminded that in 1976, when Jerry Ford, having won the nomination, invited Reagan to come down and speak at the convention, Reagan's opening line is, my fellow Republicans in the hall and all of the Democrats and independents around the country who share our values. And as part of why, when we put together the campaign of 94, it's the contract with America, it's not a contract with Republicans. Right or a contract with conservatives. It's because there are obviously a great many people, and you see this coming out more and more each day, who say, I thought I was a liberal. I've never considered myself a conservative, but I can't go along with critical race theory or transgender ideology for kids or burning the American. I can't do that. And so I guess I'm not a conservative, but I'm something else, I suppose. Yeah, I can't go along with hating the American flag. Yeah, so there's this whole series of things coming along. One of the things you might look at for a future book, in response to both the seeds that Trump planted and the radicalism of the Democrats in the House, Senate, and White House, you have a red state resurgence of conservatism that is kind of astonishing. I mean, where they're just going head to head with the left and beating them on issue after issue, you know, outlawing critical race theory, outlawing 1619, in ways that six years ago would have been impossible. You know, I think part of this is because for, I don't know, the past 10, 15 years, so many arguments from the right were really just arguments about efficiency or trimming around the edges or reduce this regulation a little here, cut taxes a little here, but, but they, they weren't 
they, they weren't really making arguments that got to the heart of the matter. I think there are really only two issues that we've done a tremendous job at over the past 30, 40 years as conservatives, and those issues are abortion, where we've held the line and actually made some gains, especially at the state level, and guns. There's, we've made some gains at the courts and in legislation, and you'll notice those are two issues where the arguments are not about efficiency or managing things a little better. They're arguments from justice. They're arguments from, as, as you said earlier, this is right and this is wrong. And, and what you're seeing now at the states on critical race theory or, or any of these other issues is you're seeing arguments from justice and ordinary Americans who are conservative or otherwise coming out and saying, uh-uh, I don't care what silly jargon you got, I don't care how many spreadsheets you got, this is wrong and I know it and you know it. And I think if we have a bit more of that, I think we'll be able to make a more persuasive argument. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Now, Michael, I'm very curious. What do you make of the fact that we have had just an extraordinary increase in the purchase of both guns and ammunition. I mean, we're now, you know, with the possible exception of Afghanistan, the most heavily armed country on the planet. <laughs> well, as you pointed out earlier with the 85% agreement, it ain't just Republicans. You don't get these kinds of gun sales and ammunition sales among just Republicans. And I think anecdotally, we all know a number of Democrats or liberals, or former liberals who have gone out and said, you know, with crime spiking, with people calling to abolish the police, 
I'm going to go get a gun. I mean, I purchased my first rifle back when I lived in Mussolini's failed state of California because, actually at the time it was Governor Moonbeam who was running the state, because he had threatened to outlaw certain rifles. And I said, well, I guess I've got to go buy one right now. And a lot of other people did that as well. I think you're seeing people recognize that their rights, even their basic civil rights, like the right to own a gun, are being seriously threatened right now. You've got unified Democrat government. Thankfully, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have held the line for now. We'll see how much longer that lasts. And so they're beginning to say, if I don't exercise my basic rights now, if I do not participate in the American tradition right now, I may lose it. Because when you've got not just unified government, but then the left dominating literally every single other institution, that is a position of political disadvantage that cannot bode well. I think it's fascinating. On the one hand, we have a very uphill, very daunting challenge. On the other hand, as with guns, we have this country where the country's moving. I mean, every once in a while in American history, people just run over the establishment. And my hunch is in the not very distant future, you're going to see people like Zuckerberg suddenly just collide with a reality that they can't quite imagine. It was 1902. The coal miners didn't want to settle a strike. And Theodore Roosevelt brought him into the White House. And the coal miners explained that under private property rights, it was their property and they weren't going to do it. And he explained he was the President of the United States. And when the U.S. Army took over their mines the next morning, they might want to rethink that. At which point they said, you know, we really be glad to chat with you right now and skip that other phase. Whether it was the railroads or Standard Oil or AT&T, I mean, we've had a whole series of moments where the oligarchs looked like they were totally dominant, and then they weren't. I think, by the way, that these arguments that some people are still making these arguments that, oh, well, Google is a private company or Facebook is a private company, and so we can't tell them what to do. First of all, I'd be curious about their definition of private. Last I checked, Google has a pretty cozy relationship with the federal government. I guess it depends. They have a cozy relationship with the Chinese government. I think they have a cozy relationship with our government as well. But Facebook, the same thing is true. Twitter, the same thing is true. And so President Trump right now is suing for the supposed violation of his First Amendment rights. He may have an argument if he can convince judges that the government in some way was using big tech as a way to oust him. But even beyond that narrow question, just consider the broader question. If you've got three oligarchs in Silicon Valley who are controlling 90% of the flow of information around the internet, which is the public square, which is the way that we govern ourselves, is by persuading and speaking to one another. That's why language is so important. That is simply an unacceptable situation for a free people. And a free people is absolutely within its right to find a political solution to that. And they can prattle on all day about their rights as a small little mom-and-pop Facebook or a small little mom-and-pop Google, but I just don't want to hear it. We, the people, have the right to assert ourselves. And by the way, as Mitch McConnell said not too long ago, if my rights are being taken away and my political tradition is being upended by a woke corporation that is acting like a parallel government, well, that is no great consolation to me that it isn't big government doing it, that it's some fellow in Silicon Valley. Teddy Roosevelt actually talked about this, as did Barry Goldwater. We are against all sorts of unlimited power, and I think people across the aisle, but especially on the right, are waking up to that. I think it's very important conceptually because, you know, stepping aside from Trump, who's obviously polarizing, 
when these organizations, either out of collusion because they got together at breakfast or just because they intuit what the virtuous would do, when they cut off the oldest newspaper in America and the fourth largest, I mean, it's not a trivial. You're looking at the New York Post a few weeks before an election and these idiots who happen to have been lucky one time and hit bingo. I mean, that's what we're talking about. These are guys who could easily have gone broke, in which case we wouldn't even notice them, except they might belong to a local Rotary Club. But they happen to get lucky. And now, much like Russian oligarchs, they now believe that that is vested in them, that God came down and gave them wisdom, money, and power, and therefore they have to exercise wisely for the rest of us. Not just power to control the public flow of information, not just power to say you can't post this, even the private transmission of this information. When I saw the New York Post story, which we now know was just completely accurate, but at the time we were told this is misinformation. I forget if they blame the Russians or the Ukrainians. It's always one of those guys. But in anyway, that's why we can't send it. I could not even privately message that article until after it was no longer politically dangerous for them. Whoopsie-daisy. Our mistake, I guess the reporting was somewhat credible, well, no big deal. That kind of political control is terrifying. It's unacceptable, and you can't help but notice it only ever goes in one direction, which is why the left is quiet about it. I have a hunch that reality is going to overwhelm structure. In 1980, Reagan, who had been far too radical for the Easterners and who was seen as too old, and you go down a list. But the country looked around, essentially, and said, okay, we know Jimmy Carter's failed. And we know Carter has promised less energy, lower standard of living, less hope. I mean, if you go back and you read some of the stuff, I'm reading a book on Reagan and Carter, just to get a flavor for what I think is coming. Because Carter got caught up in this stuff, he couldn't get out of it. I mean, he had inflation, he had unemployment, he had the hostage crisis in Iran, and he couldn't get out of it. And Reagan comes along cheerfully, and one of his great lines, he said, if your neighbor is unemployed, it's a recession. If you're unemployed, it's a depression. If Carter's unemployed, it's a recovery. On this very point that you're making, it is the great conservative hope, I think, that reality will reassert itself in the end. I think Russell Kirk may have described that as the great conservative consolation. And it's actually, on the level of language, you see this theory of the euphemism treadmill. It came out from Steven Pinker at Harvard. And what Pinker described is, you can change the words, but eventually the reality of what the words are describing is going to reassert itself, and it's going to color even those nice, shiny words. And now I think the words do have some sort of a longer-lasting effect, and so it becomes a battle between the wordsmiths, the redefiners, and the reality. But I think you have struck on the central hope that we have, namely, you can't lie about reality forever. Well, and I think, in a sense, that's what Burke was all about. I mean, Burke is saying, look, the French Revolution, by definition, will devour itself. You know, it has no choice. It's the nature of that kind of organism. And you talked about the historical sense earlier. One of the most shocking things, the first time you read Burke and you realize that he's writing before the terror, obviously before Napoleon, is that he predicts everything. Because Burke has an understanding of an historical sense and also of the way that politics is going to play out practically. I mean, the, the man... The proof of the pudding is in the tasting, and you can see that those certain ideas are going to have certain consequences. 
Well, that's part of where I take heart when I read things like Sad's book, because my instinct is, and, and I've lived through it several times now, the left in the end can't help itself. Because they really are, in Hoffer's term, they really are true believers. Years ago, one of my minor contributions to American government, we had liberated the island of Grenada. Grenada had a genuinely Stalinist regime. And luckily for us, they spoke English. So you can actually get the Grenada Papers, which were the governing documents of their ruling group who met every day. And I was a backbench member, and I got the State Department to publish it because it's the first time we'd ever had the actual internal working documents of a communist dictatorship. Well, it's hysterical. The system's collapsing. Now, this, this is a tiny island made up mostly of people from Africa, surviving based largely on agriculture and tourism, and it's collapsing. And they decide they will have meetings every Tuesday afternoon for two hours to study the writing of Stalin. Now, you have a Georgia bank robber in the largest country in the world in an extraordinarily cold climate, writing stuff that's being read by these guys who are trying to figure out what should we do. <laughs> in a sense, it's exactly the point of your book. Stalin's history of the Soviet Revolution is one of the key documents that you study if you're in the Chinese communist hierarchy. And I read about a third of it, and boy, is it hard. I mean, but it shows you how to organize a hierarchical Leninist party. And they believe it and they do it. This is, of course, why you see so much of the focus of the left is on education. You think, why are they so obsessed with third and fourth grade? I think also why they're trying to extend preschool now to be you come out of the womb and then about three days later you start preschool and you remain in graduate school until you're 42. If you can have that period of time where you are shaping not even just ideas, not even just skills, but the very words that you use to describe your culture, why you've controlled the body politic. And especially if you can undermine liberal education, then people will not know how to make sense of their own freedom, which is the very point of that education. Let me just say, I think you are making... Two contributions, one with your show, The Michael Knowles Show at The Daily Wire, and two with this great new book, which is already among those who actually count books sold a bestseller, and among those on the left who can't count, you're going to get there because they won't be able to stop the momentum. But I think speechless, controlling words, controlling minds is exactly right, and uh, did come out on the day that the Germans attacked Russia in 1941. So there's a certain historic sensibility about that. I appreciate so much, Michael, you're joining us. And I hope anytime you want to, you feel free to come back and we'll continue this dialogue. Well, the pleasure is all mine. It's a real honor to speak with you, Speaker Gingrich, and I really, really appreciate it. Thank you to my guest, Michael Knowles. You can get a link to his new book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. 
Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.